Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we'll have a conversation with Kali Rabai, an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, about the toxic legacy of the war in Iraq and the underlying reasons for the high rates of birth defects in the city of Fallujah. Stay with us. For many, the war in Iraq is over. But for Iraqis, decades of wars, backbreaking economic sanctions, and the catastrophic 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq have left a generation of Iraqis coping with long-term health and environment problems, including cancers, increased miscarriages, and horrific birth defects in newborns. Fallujah in Anbar province has been described as the city with the highest rates of birth defects in the world, higher even than the Hiroshima after the U.S. dropped a nuclear bomb on the city in 1945. In her new piece in the Middle East Research and Information Project Journal, our guest Kali Rabai argues that in Iraq, birth defects are a visible embodiment of the enduring toxic legacy of war for the environment and for generations to come. Professor Robai is a cultural anthropologist who studies the materiality of structural violence, especially ecological arrangements between living and non-living things. I think that one of the most important things that's happening in Fallujah is that doctors like Samira Alani and her colleagues are doing a really good job of documentation. That doesn't mean that Fallujah is the only place that's seeing cancer and birth defects and other health-related problems connected to war, but it does mean that the archive is the strongest there. Fallujah, yes, may be known as a city with birth defects or um, in in some vernacular, the ground zero of the war on terror. Fallujah faced heavy bombardment in 2004 and 2008, and then subsequent bombing and shelling 2012, 2014. So it's a city that has seen a lot of military violence. And it's also a city that has faced uh, higher levels of disenfranchisement and political abandonment in various periods in recent history. It's a big city. It sees a lot of people. The hospitals see a lot of patients. And the most recent military intervention in Iraq by the United States has included significant waste abandonment, which includes Fallujah and areas surrounding it. So everything from burn pits where things are discarded and burned into the air, leaving dioxins for children and adults to breathe, to um, discarded vehicles and excess weapons. Mm -hmm. The entire Iraq landscape has been transformed by military violence in one way or another. And Fallujah is what some people call a hotspot for that military violence that's in a way, a canary in the coal mine for other cities and other communities in the world. There have been several studies looking into high rate of birth defects in Fallujah. What do these studies show and what are they finding in children's bodies, as well as the mothers and the fathers that can cause these horrific birth defects, including congenital heart diseases, missing limbs, spinal deformities, just to name a few. Good question. And I'll start by just saying that the underlying cause of any individual birth defect 
is syndemic, meaning it's not necessarily one thing, but collision of lots of different causes. So rather than strontium or depleted uranium as a single objective cause, it's more the phenomenon of war, the phenomenon of extractive industry and the various toxins that come together to create cancers, birth defects, and other health-related illnesses. Dr. Mozgan Savabias Fahani, who's at, um, I think, University of Michigan, has done a really great job presenting in articles and YouTube videos succinct summaries of the correlation between proximity to heavy bombardment and birth defects. And heavy bombardment in this case doesn't just mean bombs falling from the sky, but close proximity to burn pits, refineries, other kinds of toxic inundations that we can call bombardments. And one of the issues with looking at the syndemic cause of health anomalies is that you have to know what to test for to find it. So a lot of different studies have shown a lot of different toxins in, in children's bodies, many of which are heavy metals of various kinds. And what we're finding in some is that those children whose parents and siblings were living closely to heavy bombardment for at least the entirety of their younger years are likely to then have series of birth defects, spontaneous abortion, difficulty conceiving, a variety of fertility problems. Birth defects in a way are a symbol of the broader health conditions that they represent. The United States launched 800 cruise missiles within the first 48 hours of the invasion in March of 2003, more than double the number of missiles launched in the entire Persian Gulf War. Between 2002 and 2005 alone, U.S. expanded 6 billion bullets, roughly 200,000 to 300,000 bullets per individual killed in Iraq. And the number of shells full of lead Mercury does not include larger ordinances and other metal remnants from after 2005 or from previous wars, as you write, Iraq-Iran War, the first Persian Gulf War, the sanctions era, the 2003 occupation, which instigated decades of militia warfare. And you write, the most recent military intervention in Iraq was accompanied by unprecedented waste abandonment and waste burning, discarded vehicles, excess weapons, discarded clothing, and much more were left in Iraq's land, air, and water. So this basically points to a bigger question, and that is the acute public health crisis in Iraq. And more specifically in Fallujah, given the high rates of congenital malformations. So what is in place to reduce the risk? Are there certain measures in place to identify if a woman is at risk for having a baby with certain birth defects? Because abortion is illegal. And I was reading about a case in Fallujah where the parents had to ask religious authorities to grant them permission for abortion. Yes, that's right. Well, I know that there are some predictors of birth defects. One of the things that has been so alarming for many of the women that I live and, and work with 
is that family may have a history of birth defects, that's a different thing, but that for a lot of women who have had no history of children with birth defects or of repeated spontaneous abortion or failing to carry to term, they suddenly started noticing this pattern after 2003, 2004, 2005. And it's created quite a challenging situation for women who want to conceive and bear children, who sometimes have repeated miscarriages and repeated non-viable pregnancies, who don't want to have to live through the physical and emotional ordeal of constantly repeating this experience. And so in some cases, doctors have advised women or couples to stop conceiving children, which as you can imagine, has major social consequences. I talked to several families who had one of the one of the cultural influences of this phenomenon is that there were some families who had one of the women maybe an older sister who was having children with birth defects and then her younger sister was not able to marry because the stigma or the concern that she too might not be able to bear healthy children influenced her ability to find a partner and marry so there are lots of rippling effects that are impacting women in a very complicated way, not the least of which is the sad and terrible burden of giving birth to children who can't survive or who live very painful and short lives. 6,000 children are born each year from what I've read in Fallujah. What is the percentage of birth defects in Fallujah? Well, I will tell you that I don't know and I don't think anyone knows. And here's why. When I look at the statistics that are documented and I look at the levels of displacement and destruction to knowledge producing infrastructures like hospitals, the assassination of doctors, the displacement of families, all of the estimates seem incredibly low to me. I had a very surprising anecdotal experience when I was actually visiting a friend in a refugee camp on the border of Kirkuk back in 2015, and many of the people in that camp had fled from near Fallujah, villages outside of Fallujah. And several of the families that I met with had lined up their children to show that of their 10, 15, eight children, there was a distinct line. For children born after a certain date, it became physically apparent just by looking at children's bodies that there was something that had happened historically to transform the possibility of children to be born fully healthy. So there was a distinct line, you know, and there might be a lineup of eight or 10 children, and those born before 2004 or 2005 had no visible anomalies. And those born after were almost more than 50% of who I saw had visible, which doesn't necessarily count internal issues, visible medical problems not all of which are necessarily birth defects. Some of them were related to neurotoxins or other kinds of medical issues. So these are compounded syndemic medical problems that are not only the cause of chemical toxins, but the destruction of medical infrastructure, the destruction of knowledge producing infrastructure, and lack of access to healthcare. And all of those combined to create a condition in which Many people are having children with birth defects that go unreported. Many people have medical problems that go untreated. So no matter what number we arrive at, we can anticipate that it's a chronic underestimation. In 2018, for example, 118,000 people in Basra ended up in the hospital because of poor water quality. So that also says something about how these problems 
can be compounded over time. As time passes, it becomes even more difficult to identify what is causing these illnesses or these congenital malfunctions in babies specifically. That's absolutely true. I know that Zainab Saleh just recently published a piece in Cost of War about mm -hmm. the human cost of U.S. intervention in Iraq. And she outlines everything from destroyed medical infrastructure to chemical saturation and reminds us that, for example, it was during the sanctions, many people I talked to say the sanctions were a war too, that doctors had to watch children suffocate from asthma because inhalers were inaccessible in the 90s. And then we have uh, journalist Rosina Ali, who published an article in Foreign Affairs recently documenting how Iraq is handling COVID. Mm. This is a country that has 1.4 hospital beds and 0.8 physicians per 1,000 people. And that's a direct result of war in which hundreds of doctors were assassinated, hospitals were shelled, and rebuilding efforts have been stayed by corruption and imperial interests. So we have to be thinking about the ways that birth defects, while captivating, especially in the imaginaries of an international community, are actually just a pointer yeah. to the much broader incidences of poor sanitation, cancer, and other environmental conditions that have produced a lot of serious health concerns that Iraqi people are living with on a daily basis. And the images capture people's attention. They do. They're not only captivating in a symbolic way, they also capture the attention of people who have experienced what they call genocide. People who feel that they have been killed because of who they are, who've been written out of public discourse as terrorists, who have been orientalized. Earlier in my research, I would mention the incidences of birth defects. And one of the most common flippant phrases, especially among less uh, educated white Americans in the academy, was, well, don't they marry their cousins there? Mm -hmm. So there's a strong urge, especially in the English-speaking world, to try and naturalize or indigenize the health consequences of what is clearly a heavy military bombardment that has lasted for decades and couldn't possibly not cause major long-term medical concerns. So one of the ways that the ecology or the environment gets written into the story of war is to naturalize and diffuse responsibility that otherwise might be leveraged for international accountability. And birth defects are a powerful, visible indicator that something is wrong. If you look at three episodes, the sanctions, the Persian Gulf War, and the invasion and occupation of Iraq in 2003, have there been studies looking at each of these episodes and their impacts on children's health? So there have been epidemiological studies looking at the long-term environmental effects of war. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of continuity in these studies, in part because of the way that knowledge-producing people and knowledge-producing institutions have been destroyed. But there was a doctor in Baghdad who did a small study based on the hunch that depleted uranium was the cause of medical problems back in the 90s, right after the Gulf War did not find convincing results from that study and stashed the data. Then after 2003, resumed that study and found that there was a higher rate of depleted uranium. And so some of 
the studies that maybe don't show consistency or continuity are the most valuable. And those are sadly not archived in a unified way because institutions have been bombed, documents have been displaced, and the people who made them have been displaced as well. Depleted uranium, you write, is one of the most widely discussed contaminants in relation to birth defects, and the World Health Organization released a report in 2003 entitled Potential Impact of Conflict on Health in Iraq, which suggested that depleted uranium might be related to reports of increased cancer, birth defect, reproductive health problems, and renal diseases in the Iraqi population since 2003. That's right. Part of the reason that depleted uranium is so suspected is that there is evidence it was used and because it's illegal. But there are so many multiple causes. My one concern with the link between depleted uranium and the campaign to ban depleted uranium is that it may have us overlooking the syndemic causes of lead and mercury and other less less anomalous heavy metals that we might find in our daily lives, but that are found in people's lives at a high concentration and in the wrong locations during war. There is a long That's- list of toxins and chemicals, white phosphorus, arsenic, lead, mercury, thorium, dioxine, That's right. which is a carcinogenic. It's a cancer-causing chemical that we're seeing the impacts of it in Louisiana, actually in what has been described and called as Cancer Alley. That's right. First of all, depleted uranium is used because it's heavy. And we have to think about why these things are appearing. Bombs and bullets are meant to kill people. And they're meant to kill people in a way that is kinetic, which means the heavier the metal, the better. So too, the heavier the metal, the more carcinogenic. We see a parallel there. And one of the reasons depleted uranium is the focal point is that it's often only seen in places of war. It's associated with war. But lead, mercury, cadmium, these are all things that are pulled out of the ground and yeah. dissipated in among poor and black and brown communities all over the world. So when we hold the deployers of heavy metals accountable, we are wise to look at the transnational connections and the forms of transnational mobilization that may make accountability possible so that communities, for example, in Cancer Alley in Louisiana and communities in Fallujah and veterans who are exposed all have a common interest in stopping the distribution of these materials and managing the cleanup that is absolutely necessary in the wake of the violence that both extractive industry and extractive war have wreaked ecologies all over the world. To continue what you're saying, about 450,000 people live in Fallujah, half of whom live in the city, and according to official estimation, but there are only two hospitals, one of which is the teaching hospital, which accommodates only 200 beds to receive all types of cases. Most baby deliveries were carried out in this hospital until the completion of second women's hospital in 2012, which has 11 male and female pediatrician doctors and 12 doctors specializing in gynecological diseases, as well as one maternal and one fetal doctor. So the problems in Iraq, because of the invasion, 
on occupation of Iraq and years and years of war and sanction has been compounded. And 74% of Fallujah was destroyed. That's right. And uh, in addition to the kind of uh, infrastructural damage, we have to think about the simple question of if, if a bomb lands on a building, what happens to the pieces of mm. the bomb? And what happens to the pieces of the building? And what children play in that rubble? And what families breathe the air? And what happens to the water? And what happens to the water supply? So even just looking at one incidence of kinetic violence, when something is broken or torn apart, we see that the repeated heavy bombardment creates conditions that couldn't possibly do anything but cause major health issues. From a hospital perspective, you've just outlined ways that hospitals are sparse, medical staff is rare. From a patient perspective, we can also think about how many people have had to flee their normal infrastructure. I mean, any of us who have had to leave our home even for a small period of time have experienced the difficulties of accessing medication, advocacy, support, medical care. Displacement is a huge component of life for Iraqis who have been displaced by war repeatedly. And then in addition to that, we're seeing a major plummet in education levels and literacy rates, which directly impacts people's access to health care. Many of the women that I worked with would have given birth to children in hospitals, except that they were displaced or they were afraid or they couldn't transport themselves. And so more and more children are going undocumented and, and labor is going undocumented and people are being put at greater and greater health risk. We also have to remember that doctors themselves are not necessarily able to regularly access their source of employment. I've interacted for decades with doctors working in and out of Fallujah, and there are periods of time when they have to flee to Baghdad or other places, and they're yeah. not actually able to do their work. Doctors were one of the most targeted groups of people right after 2003, and many of them fled the country altogether. Others were killed, and very few remain. You write beyond deliberate spatial and social transformations, chemical pollution also shapes Iraq's war ecologies. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Sure. One of the components of my research is to understand how violence was spatialized in Iraq. And what that means is looking at ways that counterinsurgency manuals and counterterrorism training has created conditions where the environment is deployed as one of the multipliers of force uh, against insurgency. Fallujah is quite famous for an insurgent resistance to the U.S. invasion in, in 2003, but other parts of Iraq as well. So one example, a quote by a U.S. Army veteran in an army blog describes concrete, which may not be sexy, he says, but is one of the most critical components of modern day warfare. What he's describing is the intimate role that T-walls or cement walling practices played in creating divisions among neighborhoods in big cities like Baghdad or Fallujah, actually inducing the kind of sectarian violence that we're seeing play out today. This was a form of spatial control, deliberate manipulation of the environment that had long-term consequences, perhaps unanticipated by the people who were implementing it. Another example is the way that, that economies were restructured and therefore changed the landscape. So, for example, a lot of the people that I worked with were not from cities, were from rural areas outside of Fallujah, and they were farmers, small-time farmers, some of them. 
And they described that the restructuring, you know, Order 81 is the most famous, the restructuring of Iraq's agricultural economy changed their interaction with their land, whether or not they could keep farming, whether or not they could access their land, save their seeds, sell their seeds in a market. It created an open market that had been closed before, meaning that farmers were not able to compete with international trade and were then no longer able to sell their food. Well, this completely changed the landscape in a way that maybe was or wasn't anticipated in the war effort, the U.S. war effort, but did restructure the physical environment and the ecology of Iraq. And all the bombs that U.S. dropped on Iraq and other ordinances, it has polluted the air, the water, and the food people eat. You lived and worked with internally displaced farming families from Anbar province in 2014 and 2015. You witnessed plant, crops, and livestock with malformed parts or tumorous growth? Yes, absolutely. One of the things that was most interesting about the way that people showed me where military violence had leaked into their ecologies was not only in pointing to destroyed infrastructure like broken water systems or failed sanitation systems, but also to how the soil had been changed. Soil had been salinated or dried out in part by neglect and in part by decades of harm. But also some of the plant parts would be multiple. For example, I saw lots of wheat heads that were double or triple when they're normally single. There were certainly many pictures that people showed me, and I did witness a few incidences of goats or other livestock with tumor growths. I saw pictures of goats with multiple limbs, but I also saw children with many physical anomalies. They conjured the feeling of the nuclear even if they are not necessarily directly related to nuclear radiation. This is just criminal. It actually is criminal. It's against international law to use depleted uranium. It's against international law to use white phosphorus. It's against international law to strike a preemptive war. These are actually war crimes. And I think that one of the reasons birth defects are such a go-to archive of harm is that they point to the possibility of these war crimes in ways that other kinds of harm don't. Cancer doesn't necessarily have the same implicating power in popular discourse. Similarly, I think studies about depleted uranium, which are widely contested, are better supported by the incidence of birth defects. So there is something going on in international discourse as well as Iraqi people are trying to both repair their environments and their bodies from heavy bombardment, military bombardment, but also the possibility for recourse in the long run. Because when we say this is criminal, we're actually referencing a body of law that was perpetually violated by U.S. and U.S.-trained military groups. We have to remember that Fallujah Hospital, it's illegal to bomb hospitals, and it has faced several incidences of bombing and shelling which are also in violation of international law. And while I'm not entirely convinced that any form of war, legal or otherwise, is valuable in the world, the fact that there are legal frameworks that regulate the kinds of violence that are allowed to be practiced gives space for legal recourse.
Professor Robai is a cultural anthropologist studying the materiality of structural violence, especially ecological arrangements between living and non-living things. You can read her recent piece titled On the Birth Defects and the Toxic Legacy of War in Iraq at merip.org. We will also link to the article on Vomina's page at kpfa.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.